Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Okay, so we're on week something, I don't know, three, four, something of a worship series called The Shape of Shalom, in which we are developing together our prophetic imaginations. That is to say, we are thinking carefully about the dominant narrative of how the world works and the way we're supposed to work in it with the counter narratives offered by the prophets of God and comparing those and hopefully strengthening our own imaginations for the life that we're called to live uh, under God's care that is sometimes weirdly (laughs) at odds with the dominant story of the world all around us. So for tonight, um, we're reading from Leviticus. Sorry. 25, 1 through 7. Give it a chance. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, And six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your harvest. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your unpruned vine. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. You may eat what the land yields during its Sabbath. You, your male and female enslaved persons, your hired and bound laborers who live with you, for your livestock also, and... For the wild animals in your land, all its yield shall be for food. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Every story needs a conflict. Otherwise, there's no story. You could say, once upon a time, there was a family who lived in a beautiful forest. Their cupboards were full. Their life together was harmonious, and they lived happily ever after. And it might be a lovely picture you're painting, but it would not be a story, because nothing happens, because nothing needs to happen, because everything is already fine. But it also might not be a good story, because it would not ring true It's not just that every story needs a conflict, it's that every life that's ever been lived has some conflict in it. Some crisis, some trouble, some pain, some sorrow. A happy family in a forest who want for nothing doesn't last, and you know that. 
So you're waiting for the thing to happen that's going to happen because things happen. Thus, the world has ever worked. Indeed, it's so ingrained, this way of the world, that our ancestors in faith told a story of how it got this way, how conflict became a feature of every life and every story. There was a family, they said, who lived in a beautiful forest. Their cupboards were full, and their life together was harmonious. Indeed, the story goes, their life was lived in harmony, not only with each other, but with everything all around them. The trees and fields, the lions and lambs, the very earth itself. The creator who made it all and loved it all said, let the earth, the soil, the ground, the dirt, put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so, and the creator saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And all that the earth yielded, all that verdant variety was granted by the creator to the family for their food. If they would till the soil and keep it and help it and take care of it, the creator said, it would continually yield whatever they needed for their sustenance, for their harmonious life together. And not only for the humans, but for their animal companions as well. Sustenance enough, yielded by the ground, the way the creator created it to work. But the conflict comes early in this old story. The harmony is disrupted when a new idea is introduced. An insidious idea that infects the human family to this day our ancestors said, that perhaps, maybe, just maybe, the earth has not yielded enough for your satisfaction. Perhaps, maybe, just maybe, says this idea, you should want more than you have, more than it has given you. Maybe, you deserve more than satiety. Maybe you are hungrier than anyone, including your creator, has yet understood. Maybe your appetite should be honored above all else. And maybe your appetite is not about hunger in your belly, but hunger in your spirit for more than your share, not of fruit, but of power a sense of ownership and control over the earth that has, up to now, yielded to you everything you truly need. Maybe its yielding is not enough. Maybe you'd rather take what you need and more. And so they do, the family. They take what has not been given. They disrupt and distort the harmony between themselves and their creator, between each other. There is the conflict and there is the story that will be replayed uncountable times in the lives of their descendants. Harmony only lasts 
until somebody gets an inkling that they could have, should have, more than their share. I'm retelling this old story tonight because I did not always understand that the earth itself is not only the setting for that story, but a character in it, caught up in their conflict, bearing consequences for trouble it did not cause. The ruined harmony of Genesis 3 is not only between God and the human family, it's not only the human family that fragments into self-interest and self-protection. The ground, too, suffers repercussions. The creator says, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, meaning now you're going to have to work for it and work hard. Because guess what? The earth isn't yielding anymore. And what's being described here is not an inherent toxicity of the soil. The cursing of the earth is not a negative spell cast by the creator on the ground. But it is a brokenness of the relationship once enjoyed between the earth and its human inhabitants. Before, it yielded what was needful in exchange for the caretaking it received. Now, though, the story goes... The family is relegated to toil and sweat, to suffering and pain, to coax from the ground, to wrangle from among the thorns and thistles the sustenance we require. Because we took, the story says, the ground no longer gives. Now we are cursed to take through hard labor forever. And the earth is cursed to be taken from by our clumsy handling forever. Forever is a mighty long time. When the Apostle Paul imagined the fullness of salvation through Jesus Christ, when he spun out all the ways that Jesus' life was the key to the eventual repair of all the brokenness, it's no wonder that he included the earth itself in his longing in Romans chapter 8, in his fullest exploration of what could be accomplished through the tragedy of Jesus' death and the triumph of his resurrection, he said, and I'm going to condense a longer section of Romans 8, starting in verse 19, he said, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. In other words, Paul says, just like human beings need Jesus, the earth itself needs Jesus. That is to say, there is a brokenness so ingrained, so long-standing, so intractable that the world itself, the very dirt we toil over, needs salvation. Just like the human children of God, Paul says, just like us, the earth, God's own child, cannot do for itself what must be done for its redemption. 
the one who made it and knows it and loves it best of all, will have to work for its repair. This gets us finally to Leviticus. Woohoo! Leviticus! <laughs> Home of clobber texts that have pounded some of you to a pulp. We have done a lot of work together as a church over the years to shuck off the heavy yoke of mistranslation and misinterpretation and historical misunderstanding of passages in Leviticus that have crushed the spirits of God's dearly, queerly beloved, or have tried. If you got here since we did that work together and Leviticus is still beating you up, please reach out to me. We can help you with that. The spirit of the living Christ in us can help you with that. But for tonight, we're looking at one of the places in Leviticus where there is a shock of bright light shining on an important idea that has not received enough attention in the history of the human family, or at least in the Calvinist capitalist era of Western history that we are living through. That long-neglected idea is that the earth deserves to rest from its work, just like people. So when Paul said that the earth requires salvation through Jesus, just like people, he was riffing on an idea that Leviticus had already had, that the creation, the ground we walk on, needs what we need. So yeah, the fourth commandment of the Big Ten says that we people should honor the Sabbath, keeping it holy by resting from our work every seventh day. You might also remember that Exodus 20 says that the Sabbath is for landowners and for workers, even enslaved people, for adults and children, for humans and animals. Your livestock gets a Sabbath rest, just like you. And from there, it's a small step to Leviticus 25, where not only the animals, but also the ground, the fields, the vineyards, the gardens, all the places where human beings have toiled and sweat to beat back the thorns and thistles, to coax from the ground the grain and the grape that are required for human life. These places need a break. The earth needs a rest from us, to be specific. We have to stop tilling and taking. We have to leave it be, Leviticus 25 says, every seventh year so the ground can breathe easy. And don't worry, says Leviticus, don't worry about what you'll eat during that seventh year. The ground won't stop giving food just because you stop working it. The plants come back, not quite as neatly and efficiently and harvestable as you might like, but good enough to feed you and yours. You may eat what the land yields during its Sabbath. You, your male and female enslaved people, everybody in your household, the earth returns to its yielding posture in the seventh year, giving instead of being taken from. And this counts as its Sabbath. And says Leviticus, when you stay out of it, when you give it a year without plowing and planting and hoeing and harvesting, your animal companions on this planet will find enough for their sustenance too. 
for your livestock also, and for the wild animals in your land. All its yield shall be for food. And that, friends, has a serious pre-conflict Genesis vibe, does it not? The humans and animals foraging together from fields that grow and give exactly what they need. If you give the land a rest, it seems to say, you're going to get a little taste of how it used to be and how it could be again, will be, if Paul and the rest of the prophets are right in God's good future. All of which leads us where exactly? We're not farmers, most of us with fields that we could let lie fallow in accordance with the scripture. I'm sure we would if we could. We forage the grocery store shelves for food and the gas station for fuel extracted from the earth for our mobility and the phone store for phones assembled from metals mined from deep in the planet for our connectedness. We are further removed from the sources of our sustenance than any previous generation. We are also more aware than any previous generation that the earth from which we take all we need is exhausted, exhausted, and thirsty, and turbulent, and breaking down in ways we hardly know how to survive, much less repair. And where the earth is most frayed, most fractious, we're more aware than we've ever been that the human family is suffering real consequences for the earth's decay. In 2020, the United Nations Migration Agency's World Migration Report told us that as of June 2019, the number of international migrants was estimated to be almost 272 million people globally which was 51 million people more than in 2010 and rising every year. Climate migration is the fastest growing category for the human family on the move. As parts of the world become less and less hospitable to human flourishing, the earth's poor pack their meager belongings and move seeking better soil seeking better lives. All of this is to say a couple of things that have shifted in my theological understanding over the last several years. Maybe they've shifted for you too. One is the earth itself is a beloved child of God, one that God intends to repair and redeem, and one for which God has always always called on the human family to be partners in this reparative enterprise. The earth gets tired, God said to the agriculturalists among our ancestors, and so you should let it rest. It's not even all that hard to imagine how that Sabbath-supplying mandate could and should be updated for 21st century earth care. That is to say, Christians have a theological interest in climate change, in preservation of undisturbed wild places, in environmental protection, in seeking ways to get what we need that do not further injure or exhaust the planet, in committing ourselves to ecological justice for the sake of the earth itself and the human family that lives upon it. 
within it, with it. It is Christian to love this world as we love our human neighbors as ourselves. Another quote from Leviticus, by the way. And because we love it, it is Christian to work and vote and pray for its health and flourishing. Two is, as we work and vote and pray for the earth's health and flourishing, we also have to examine and reevaluate what we believe we truly have to have for a healthy, flourishing life ourselves. There is a dominant narrative, a noisy story being told, that the resources of this planet are here for the taking, for our pleasure and progress. I'm not even talking about climate change deniers here. I'm talking about a mindset that really any of us could probably confess, that we want what we want, that we are accustomed to comfort and convenience, that we don't much like the idea of having less, using less, consuming less, indulging less. We're all for solar power, for example, as long as we can be guaranteed that we will never suffer a loss of electricity in our homes on a cloudy day, not for an hour. <laughs> we support changes in environmental policy as long as they don't cost us anything. Our freedom to move about the planet as we wish when we want. But consider Isaiah 40, the text that Carissa helped us read a little while ago, the one that we read often, actually, because it speaks of a time that we celebrate and yearn for the coming of our Lord and the necessity of getting ready. But Isaiah 40 also speaks a hard reality that is learned from the geography of our earth. In order for valleys to be exalted, the prophet says, mountains have to crumble. The earth only has so much stuff, see? And we can move it around, but we cannot make more. Which probably means, for this discussion of earth care, that we who use a disproportionate share of everything the earth yields, we who make more trash and throw away more food and drive more miles and occupy more square footage on this planet in order to love the planet well have to learn to do with less to carpool to turn up the thermostat to order less Amazon and Uber Eats to practice contentment in the face of incredible pressure from our Calvinist capitalist culture to want more buy more use more take more this is the counter-narrative proposed by Leviticus and by the arc of the biblical narrative for our beloved planet. That it deserves rest just like we do, and that you and I have the ability to grant it some, just a bit, one careful decision at a time. It is not surprising that the Supreme Court of this country, in one of its final decisions of this term, gutted the Environmental Protection Agency of its ability to protect the environment. 
They've shown so little neighbor love in the whole raft of their work this year. Why would they exhibit wisdom born of love for our planetary home? But we can do better, beloveds. Maybe not enough to make up for the loss of the EPA, but a start in our own hearts as we join God's story of a planet in need of rest and redemption. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.